Women, did you know you had a fifth vital sign? I bet you didn't, and you're about to find out all about it in this episode. Happy Monday, everyone, and welcome back to the From K to Z podcast. I am your favorite monotone podcast host, Karenza Williams, and you're tuned in to episode two. Today is going to be a long one. This might be our longest episode this far, but I'm really excited because we have a guest today. This is our first guest of the season, and I will introduce her in a little bit. But first, let's catch up. What's popping? How y'all been? Have you been staying warm? I know here in Canada, it is freezing outside. I've had a productive-ish week. I started going back to the gym again because, you know, here in Ontario, gyms were closed. And I think they just opened at the end of January, but I just went back the first time last Wednesday. And, you know, it definitely, I definitely almost died in that class. It was a class that I used to go to really regularly before um, the gyms closed down again. But when you don't go to the gym often and you follow that routine, the first workout back was a killer but I made it through and I'm definitely looking forward to going back and getting back into the gym I feel like it was really good for my mental health when I was going consistently and it just made me happy and I was seeing results so I'll definitely be making the gym more of a priority you guys been watching euphoria did you see the last episode not the episode that just came out yesterday but like two episodes ago I think it was episode five I think it was did Rue someone give Rue her Emmy like Give Zendaya her Emmy. Her acting in the beginning of the episode was on point. Like, I was on the edge of my seat. Like, I love that show. If you are listening to this and you have never seen Euphoria, I highly recommend you start watching Euphoria. Cassie, I don't have any words for you. Honestly, I'm going to be Team Maddie. Wait, am I? I don't know. But I just think in this situation, Cassie is wrong because you should have never slept with your best friend's ex. Well, it listen, if you have not watched Euphoria yet, spoiler alert, so I'm sorry. I should have said spoiler alert beforehand. But that's all I'm gonna say. I'm not gonna spoil it. But if you want me to do like weekly catch ups at the end of the week where I give like a rundown on like all my favorite shows that I've been watching and we like discuss the episodes, then let me know and I'll do a weekly catch up and maybe I'll post it on like a Friday maybe so yeah let me know and you watch euphoria today i will be officially announcing our new segment called origin stories and it is where i tell a story that has to do with the topic of the episode so if you read the title of this episode you know we're going to be talking about fertility awareness and stuff like that so in the topic of fertility no i'm not going to be telling the story of how i got pregnant i'm going to be telling the story of my experience with birth control I'm going to make the story quick. So long story short, the first form of birth control I've ever taken was the pill. And I'm not going to say the name of the pill, but I believe I got on the pill when I was either 16 or 17 years old. I had a little high school boyfriend at the time that we're not really going to talk about because irrelevant. And I just decided that, you know what, maybe I'm going to get on the pill. So I told my mom, I sent her an email because I was too embarrassed or nervous to tell her in person. So I sent her an email to her work email, to not her personal email, to her work email and said, 
this is that's me making my typing noises mom i like to go on the pill xyz blah 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 fast forward boom make an appointment i go to the doctor they ask you all these questions which is really awkward because you know my mom's in the room whatever i get prescribed the pill i take that while i was on it i noticed it also helped a lot with my cramps and i think i was on it for like maybe two years and then eventually i just i stopped taking it then my cramps got really bad i think i stopped taking it for like six months to a year anywhere in that time frame i don't really remember the exact number but my cramps started getting really bad again so um i went to the college doctor because on my campus when i was in college they have a little doctor so i went there to get my prescription i started taking it again for my cramps and yeah it was helping and i've just been on it pretty much you know ever since they give you like three months supply at a time so you know every three months go to re-up i don't really remember experiencing any crazy side effects i think the most i got when i first started was a headache so there was that um then i remember there was like a point in the summer like two years ago or like a year and a half ago or something um i think i had stopped taking it or like i missed a day or something and then i started again and then i ended up getting my period for like 14 days which is not normal so i had my period for 14 days and then yeah i just kept taking the pill and then i met this guy boom i end up pregnant i also forgot to add that when i was on the pill my periods were also a lot lighter and they didn't last as long which honestly i love that because i didn't have to worry about leaking ever because my flow was never that heavy but anyways after i got pregnant obviously i stopped taking the pill and i have not taken um the pill since so i had a baby like seven months ago now and at the six week appointment i got an iud put in i got the copper iud um i was super nervous to get that because i was told you know the insertion hurts a lot if you watch youtube videos like everyone talks about how much it hurts to insert i didn't feel a thing um it could just be also because i had like just given birth like a month and a half prior to that i don't know but my doctor was trying to get me on the hormonal iud but i already made up my mind and knew that i wanted the copper one which doesn't have hormones in it because truthfully i kind of was just over the whole hormone thing like i just kind of want to be hormone free and um yeah so far i have no complaints it doesn't bother me i don't feel it ever i did have cramping after the procedure which is normal i was also told that um my periods would be heavier which my first period after like giving birth it wasn't until i think like three months after and that was like by far the worst period i've ever had i was in so much pain at like my, my i was bleeding so much and so heavy um but i don't know if that's because of the iud or it's because it was my first period after giving birth i don't really know because i've had the iud the whole time so i don't really know like what was the reason for it but it was the worst and even the second one was heavy too but it wasn't as heavy as the first one and over time it's kind of starting to like i guess not just be like regular i guess you can say but i will say the difference that i have noticed from being on the um copper iud versus like the hormonal birth control that i was taking that i was taking is the um heaviness of my periods i bleed a lot more now for a lot longer which is annoying but like it is what it is you know it's life and that's pretty much where i'm at so far that's pretty much my origin story for today but now 
the moment you have been waiting for and probably why you tuned in this time because or you know what maybe you tuned in to hear my monotone voice but honestly i think our guest is more of a reason to tune in than my monotone voice so today we're gonna have on lisa hendrickson jack and she is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control conception and monitoring overall health In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children by recognizing the menstrual cycle as a vital sign. Drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, check that out, link is in the bio, a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. So without further ado, let's talk to Lisa. So welcome, Lisa, to the From K to Z podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Um, Today, I would like to discuss all things fertility as it relates to young adults, because I feel like a lot of the time women don't discuss fertility until they're at that point in their life where they're trying to conceive, which is typically not when you're 18, 19, 20, or 21 like myself, although I do have a kid. But what I've gathered by going through your Instagram page is that planning ahead really starts now. So I would like to get into that today. But first things first, before we start, um, I would like to know how did you become a fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner? Well, thank you. Um, my story began in my in my teens, I would say. So I was a, you know, I think I was a pretty typical teenager. My first period was pretty painful and heavy. So from my very first period, it was not, it it was pretty bad. So I always had to take something to deal with it. And I was a really active kid. So I was in, you know, sports, I played basketball, volleyball, I was in ballet. So, you know, picture a leotard or whatever with like super heavy periods, right? (laughs) It's not a good scenario. So I didn't really know how to deal with it. I went to my doctor with the intention of asking to be put on the pill because I had heard, you know, girls talk. So I'd heard that it kind of makes it more manageable. And I really didn't have to say but a couple words. And my doctor put me on the pill. So I literally like didn't even finish my sentence. <laughs> my doctor was already writing the prescription kind of thing. And so what happened is that my pill periods were pretty easy to deal with. They were lighter and I didn't have the pain. And so as a teenage girl who didn't know anything about her body, I kind of thought, sweet, you know, I'm fixed. And so I would come off the pill periodically because I wasn't taking it for birth control at the time. Like I wasn't sexually active. And every time I would stop taking it, I would get my actual period back. And my actual period was the same as it was before. So I didn't have the words to explain, you know, that difference there, but I did see from with my own eyes and my own experience that whatever was happening on the pill was not the same as what was happening off of it. And obviously it hadn't fixed anything. So this is kind of the prequel to what happened. So when I actually decided, like when I was a little bit older, went to university and was in my first relationship and, you know, was becoming sexually active, I actually made the decision to come off of birth control before I had even heard of fertility awareness. And the reason was because I did worry that there was something wrong with me. I didn't think that there was, it was normal to have so much pain. My pain was ridiculous. I'd be on the floor and I've since had two children and the labor, the first part of the labor was a lot more manageable than my period pain. So I didn't know anything, but I just felt like it shouldn't be like this. So I came off the pill for that reason, because I kind of thought to myself, I need to figure out what's wrong with me because I don't think this is normal. And I was kind of concerned that I might have some issues when I was ready to conceive, 
which obviously for me was not when I was like 18 and 19. But the other reason I came off is because since I wasn't taking it for birth control, I wouldn't take it at the same time every day. I had read the inserts and I was really scared that I could miss a pill or something and then get pregnant and not know I was pregnant or something like that. Like that was kind of my biggest fear. So it was right around this time that I decided, okay, I'm coming off the pill. I'm going to use condoms instead that I discovered fertility awareness. And so that was really life-changing because I learned that you can't get pregnant every day, that there's a small window of fertility and you can actually use it for birth control to avoid pregnancy. So I was like a fish to water. I jumped in, I learned it. I started using it for myself. So with fertility awareness and condoms, I managed my fertility for, you know, my twenties successfully. And there was a group on my university campus that taught fertility awareness. And so I joined them and I started coming just as an attendee, but I just kept coming. And so eventually I became one of the organizers. And then together there was a group of us that took a training program uh, through the justice program together. So in my early twenties, I took this training program and we started leading groups and teaching women to chart. And so this is kind of the beginning of my story and how it evolved into what I'm doing now. So that was in my early twenties. And basically when I was uh, a bit older, late twenties, early thirties, I had my first son. And it was around that time that, because when I was in my early twenties, it was more of a grass movement kind of thing, like grassroots kind of thing. And I never really thought that I could make a profession out of it officially, but I felt when I had my son, I realized that even though I had been able to take for granted all of this information for basically a decade, that I, the average woman still didn't understand how this works. So, you know, this is like a super long answer (laughs) to your question, but this is essentially what brought me to what I'm doing now. Um, Because I know it's not a typical field. There's not, you know, a lot of people, there's more now, but certainly it's not your average everyday thing. And so I know people are kind of like, how did you get into that? And so hopefully that gives a bit of a entryway. Yeah, I find fertility awareness to be very interesting because it's something that honestly, I don't really know about too much either. So for those who don't know, what is fertility awareness? So fertility awareness is in a basic sense, it teaches you how to understand your cycle. So if I take you through the menstrual cycle, the first day of your cycle is basically the first day of your period. And once your period is finished, you're in that ovulatory phase, we can call it. So once your period is done, you start to approach ovulation in a healthy, typical, normal cycle when you're not on contraceptives. And so as you approach ovulation, your body starts to make cervical fluid in response to rising estrogen levels. And then you know, at some point those rising estrogen levels trigger ovulation. And so then you ovulate and you move into the second half of your cycle. So the post ovulatory phase, and basically your cervical fluid then dries up and your period comes about 12 to 14 days later. So that's a rough, just outline of what the cycle is like. So fertility awareness teaches you how to identify when you're ovulating, how to identify when you're fertile in the cycle and how to predict when your period is coming. And so with this information, as you learn that you actually can't get pregnant every single day, you learn that your fertility is tied to the cervical fluid production. So as you approach ovulation and you make the cervical fluid for anyone who's not familiar, it kind of looks like clear, stretchy egg whites, like raw egg whites, uh, or, and, or like creamy white hand lotion. Mm -hmm. So I know for myself, looking back when I was a teenager, before I started taking the pill, I remember that there was a point in time where I started to get this wet stuff in my underwear. 
and I had no idea what it was. And I remember asking my mom about it and she didn't really know what it was, <laughs> but she told me like, yeah, that's normal. I get that too. And she just, you know, bought me panty liners and then I wore panty liners. Right. But I distinctly remember that all, like it, I didn't have it before, but all of a sudden there was like a period of time in my cycle when I would get like my underwear would be kind of wet. And so this is a, obviously a common experience. You may have a similar experience or may have had. Yeah. Uh, and many women have noticed, maybe they go to the bathroom and they wipe and it's super slippery. And some women actually go to the doctor because they think they're having an infection. Mm-hmm. And, and in that case, some, some doctors even prescribe medication uh, mm-hmm. for something that's completely normal and natural. So um, ultimately fertility awareness allows you to understand what's going on. So when you have that cervical fluid, as you approach ovulation, it's a sign of fertility because that fluid keeps the sperm alive for up to five days. And once you ovulate, that fluid goes away in a healthy, typical cycle. And then your period predictably comes if you're not pregnant 12 to 14 days later. So you can really understand what's happening. And with that knowledge, you can decide whether you want to avoid pregnancy. So some women obviously choose to use this as birth control. Like I did, you can use it to optimize your chances of conception if you're trying to conceive. And then also you can use it as a way to track overall health. And so it's really interesting because this is something that most women have never really heard of. And it's such basic biology that when, when women, I actually just came off the phone with a client before I joined on to this call and started this interview. And she was saying, she was like, I read taking charge of your utility. And she's like, I was upset. She's like, I was so outraged because we're not told this basic information about how our body works. And I feel like this is a very common reaction among women who discover this whole fertility awareness thing. Yeah, because I never really heard of it. And in terms of like the cycle, I never really thought of it like that, like in depth to me, like I have a period tracking app on my phone, but I literally just use it to like know when my period's coming. I don't take into account like the ovulation days, like for the most part, I kind of just would ignore those. What are your thoughts on period tracking apps? Well, so I think that period tracking apps are great in some ways, because I think that they at least get women involved in they're, you know, paying attention to their cycle. So because I do this for a living and the method that I teach is so detailed and thorough, sometimes I'll have women coming to me, you know, when they're wanting to learn to chart and they have a history of using period apps and they kind of apologize like, Oh, I was just tracking my period. It wasn't very good, but it's, there's an incredible amount of information you can gather just from tracking your periods. Uh, So in terms of fertility awareness, you know, for someone who wants to use this method for birth control, they want to kind of dive deeper into it, like totally go down the rabbit hole with it, then period tracking apps aren't the one kind of caveat that I like to say for women who are actually wanting to use fertility awareness more specifically for either getting pregnant or avoiding is that the period tracking apps, they basically do an average of your cycle and predict when your next period is going to be based on that. And with fertility awareness, what you learn is that you're not a robot and your cycles are not just the same all the time. And so often when women are using period tracker apps, I'll hear things like, well, my period was late this month or whatever. But if you're tracking your cycle, you know that ovulation can vary a bit from cycle to cycle. So truly many women, what they might perceive to be a late period is simply that their ovulation may have been, you know, one or two days later than it was the previous cycle kind of thing. So I think the period tracker app is like a great intro. And I think some of them actually give you the option to track mucus and stuff like that. And then it kind of piques interest. Like, 
what's mucus? <laughs> and then you kind of have to look into it. But I would say it really depends on how far down the rabbit hole you want to go. If you really want to track, there's apps that are specifically like designed to help you track your cycle and allow you to collect other data and, and kind of track those main fertile signs. And so I should mention, because you had asked what fertility awareness is, and I gave a general uh, explanation, but for, for women who are tracking their cycles, there's three main fertile signs that they would pay attention to typically. And so that is the cervical mucus that I had mentioned, basal body temperature, which is basically taking your temperature each morning before you get out of bed. And what happens is once you ovulate, the temperature rises because after ovulation, you make progesterone. And so there's a, a change that happens hormonally that you can actually monitor by tracking your temperature, which is, I think it's really cool. And it's very sciencey. So it's like real-time data. And also you can track the cervical position. So that would involve inserting your finger into your vagina and actually checking the change in the position and texture of the cervix. So that's optional. You know, not everybody does that, but it is one of the possible ways to track. Would charting be the same as like natural family planning? Yeah, that term is used pretty much interchangeably with the fertility awareness method. Okay. All right. So um, what does a normal healthy menstrual cycle look like or what should it look like? And how do you know if you have a healthy menstrual cycle? Well, so that's a great question. And I like to start by just sharing that sometimes when I hear the word menstrual cycle or when women will ask me about the menstrual cycle, they're referring to their period. <laughs> so first and foremost, you know, I'll go through all the signs of a healthy cycle or the general parameters. And it's important to know that the menstrual cycle encompasses everything that happens from the first day of your period until the last day before your next one. So we can start with the period. So in a healthy, for a healthy period, like in a, in a healthy cycle, your period would last anywhere from about three to seven days. The average is about four to five. We would expect that your period starts moderate to heavy and kind of gradually decreases. So for anyone who's had a period, like a true menstrual bleed when you're not on contraceptives. So when you're on contraceptives, you bleed, you know, depending on the type you're taking. Uh, so if you're on a 28 day pill, you bleed every 28 days, but it's not the same thing as a true menstrual period because you're not ovulating when you're taking a hormonal contraceptive. So for a true menstrual period, for anyone who's had, you know, you can just think about your period. It typically starts pretty heavy and by day two or three, you've lost the majority of the blood and it kind of tapers off. You know, I think that sounds familiar. So the important thing about a period is it, sh it should have a beginning, a middle and an end, and then it should be done. So although some women do experience bleeding that continues or bleeding throughout the cycle or spotting or that kind of thing, it's important to remember that a true healthy period has a beginning, a middle and end, and then it's over like a sentence. <laughs> so three to seven days. And then in terms of the bleeding itself, um, 25 to 80 milliliters is basically considered to be normal. And so I think that it's helpful to just have a bit of a, and you know, that's somewhere between like one to three ounces or so. And so there are plenty of women that bleed more than that, but it is helpful to understand that there is a normal amount of bleeding because women who have excessive bleeding uh, should get, get screened. So I know for myself, I always had really heavy periods. And when I was screened, I had fibroids. And so if you're having very, very heavy bleeding or basically no bleeding, those are things that should be looked into. Okay. And just to give a, a sense of like what that amounts to. So a, a regular pad or tampon holds, let's say like 
four to five milliliters approximately. And so um, if we're talking like 25 to 80, so on the short end, it would be filling like at least one pad, um, like five times <laughs> full. And then on the heavy end, it would be like filling four to five pads a day, you know, during those first couple of heavy days. So there are, there are people who bleed way more than that. There are people who fill a pad an hour. So it's, yeah. you know, you need to know that that's not okay. <laughs> yeah. And then the last thing I'll say about the period, and so literally I've only covered the period, but the last thing I'll say about the period is that it's very common for women to have pain, but although pain is very common, moderate to severe pain with your period is not optimal. It's not a sign of a healthy cycle. It's a sign of inflammation. And if it's the pain is severe, it can be a sign of a more serious condition like endometriosis or pelvic inflammatory disease. So it's, it's something that we have normalized as a culture and women feel that they need to just accept and we just take, you know, the painkillers for it, like I did, which is necessary because it can be so painful, but I think it's helpful to know that it's not just a normal thing to have all this pain. Uh, so that's the first part, the period. <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll quickly go through the rest of it. So a typical healthy cycle overall, the cycle length should be somewhere between about 24 to 35 days for your average woman. And what we consider to be irregular is if the cycle fluctuates more than about eight days from cycle to cycle. So it's perfectly fine to have a cycle that say 28 days, one cycle, 32 days, 27 days, like you, that, that little bit of variation is, is considered to be normal where we consider it to be abnormal is if it's like 29 days, 40 days, 45 days, and then 32 days. So when we're seeing that variation of more than eight days from cycle to cycle. Um, and so I, I think for some of your listeners, it's, it's probably interesting to hear me go through it in such detail because typically we have never heard this level of detail about the cycle. Yeah. <laughs> um, so once we finish our, and, and, and so funny, cause I, I'm still not done. Right. I'm still going, but, <laughs> um, once we finish our period, then we enter into the, like that pre-ovulatory phase, as I mentioned. And so in a normal healthy cycle, we would expect to have at least two to seven days of cervical fluid. So that's that clear, stretchy stuff for the lotion stuff. And we would expect to see that as we approach ovulation. So it's not normal to have some sort of discharge every single day. And it's not normal to have none. So two to seven days with at least one day where you're actually seeing some of that clear, stretchy cervical fluid. And then once you ovulate in a healthy cycle, it's supposed to stop the mucus. And then your period is supposed to come 12 to 14 days later. So the length of the second half of the cycle is very important. If the length of the cycle is really short, like seven or eight days, that's a sign of low progesterone, hormonal imbalance, and can be related to increased PMS symptoms and other problems. And so that kind of is what we're looking for, for a healthy cycle. Wow. That, that, wow. I did not know all of that. So basically we never really get out of the cycle. We're in the cycle 24 seven, pretty much. You mean the menstrual cycle? Yes. Well, yes and no, right? Like you, many, many, many women take hormonal contraceptives. And so when you're on a hormonal contraceptive, you know, it prevents you from ovulating. Most of them prevent you from ovulating or interfere with ovulation. And so when you're doing that, you're not cycling. Okay. Um, and then, you know, obviously if you conceive, <laughs> but generally speaking for a woman of reproductive age, cycling is part of the, the picture. And I think what we're sold we're sold this idea as young women that our cycle only matters if we're trying to have a baby. And so if we're not trying to have a baby, it kind of like, isn't important, but the way I explain it is we're not robots. We're not machines. So if I was to buy my car, if for some reason 
they didn't put in the air conditioning, the engine would still work because it's a machine and the engine is separate to the air conditioner. But as women of reproductive age, it's part of the process. And I think one of the ways to demonstrate that is when you have, when you actually, you know, take a hormonal contraceptive and stop ovulation, if anyone's ever looked into the side effects that many women experience, it's like depression, the libido, painful sex, anxiety, um, panic attacks, mood disorders, nutrient deficiencies. And you might think to yourself, well, if it's only about having babies, how could it affect my mood and my sex drive and all of these other things that don't seem to be related to having a baby? That is true. I never. And so the reason is because we're not like, we're not a car and the, the ovulation is not like a separate feature. Like it's part of being in an adult female human body. <laughs> um, and if we think about it like that, so that's basically the message that I always like to share with my clients and in my book and podcast, which is that the menstrual cycle is a vital sign. So we can take our temperature and we know that if the temperature is too high, we probably have a fever and that could be a sign of an infection. We know that if we do our blood pressure and it's too high or low, that each of those are associated with specific medical issues. And the menstrual cycle can be used in much, much the same way. So if your cycle is supposed to be between 24 and 35 days and your cycle's 50 days, that's a problem. That's a sign of a potential health issue. And that could be related to uh, something like PCOS, which is a metabolic issue with, you know, insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, um, and, and a variety of, um, issues with sugar regulation. If you just lose your period altogether, it can be a sign that you're not eating enough food. You're over, um, hypothalamic amenorrhea is associated with losing your period completely for six months or more. And that's associated with eating too little and exercising too much. So quite literally the menstrual cycle is something that just keeps going (laughs) in our reproductive years. Um, and also it's continuously mirroring our overall health. And so if it's not normal and healthy, if it doesn't fall in the normal parameters, it's a sign that we have to look at what's going on to upset our, our health such that it's affecting our cycle in this negative way. That is very true. Cause a couple of years ago I had, um, like I was just really tired all the time and like low on energy for a while. And people kept telling me to go to the doctor, but you know, I hate the doctor. So I just, I was not listening. And then eventually when I finally went and I got a blood test, I found out that like my iron was like extremely low to the point that I had to go and get like a, an iron transfusion like that day or like the doctor said I could have had like a heart attack. And the first thing they asked me was if I had like heavy periods, which I didn't at the time. Mm. Yeah. That was like the, that was the first thing they asked me, like how my periods were when they found out all that information because they thought that I had like a bleed somewhere. Like I was just like losing a lot of blood. Well, and was this after you had your, no, this was before, this was before this was like in 2017, 2018. Hmm. Yes, it was like a couple of years ago. Well, I think that it makes sense that they asked that question, but it's interesting because I think sometimes in our medical system, it's kind of like when there's a big problem, then they're asking. Whereas in my perfect world, you know, potentially asking about a woman's cycle and her periods would be a standard part of it because you can kind of detect certain things before it gets to the point that you need an iron infusion. And, you know, one of the reasons that they would have asked if you have heavy periods is because low iron is associated with heavy periods. And it's kind of one of those things where is it the chicken or the egg? It makes logical sense that if you have super low, like if you have really heavy periods that you're letting out all this blood. So of course it means that you could be at a higher risk of low iron. And that's one of the reasons that they actually have that top uh, limit to what they consider a normal amount of 
bleeding, like the normal flow or volume. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, for some women, if their iron is really low, they're also having all this bleeding. Um, so it, it's kind of associated on both sides. Yeah, but my iron was low, but I didn't even, I didn't have any heavy periods. I never really had heavy periods per se. I would say the, the time that I could really say was really heavy was my first period after giving birth. That was like the heaviest my period has ever been. And I think it has a lot to do with the, um, I'm not sure if it's because it was my first period after I gave birth, or it's also because I got the copper IUD, which I heard one of the side effects is heavier periods. And I got my IUD before I got my first period. So I can't really say or pinpoint exactly what caused it to be heavy. Yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's a little tricky, but generally speaking, it's well known that the copper IUD does increase bleeding and cramping. Yes. And one of the potential reasons why that is, is because of the mode of action. So the copper IUD works by causing a local inflammation in the uterus, and that would therefore change the nature of the endometrial lining to make it less receptive if there was a pregnancy. And then in addition, it releases copper ions, which are spermicidal. So those two modes of action are kind of like the main reason that it works. And so with that said, it's causing localized inflammation. So that would make sense that it's associated with heavier bleeding and and worse cramping. Yeah. The cramping was so bad. Like I remember, like I used to brag all the time about not having any cramps and then like the period, the first period, oh my gosh, I was like complaining for days. Well, and I think it's a, this is one of the topics that I cover that I guess is somewhat controversial because I do talk about contraceptives and I say controversial because I really I'm clear on my message in terms of all of the contraceptive options, which is that I, it's, it's important for women to have informed consent Mm -hmm. and informed consent. What that means is that you understand what the risks are and and what the common side effects are. And even some of the least common side effects so that you can make the decision if this is right for you, but also so that if you start to experience some of those side effects that you know, that it could be related, because what I see a lot is that women take different contraceptives, whether we're talking about pill, patch, ring, shot, um, IUD, et cetera. And we often don't know what some of the most common side effects are. I think in the the case of the copper IUD, it is well known, I think, to to, the majority of the extent that it is associated with heavier bleeding and pain Mm -hmm. uh, and cramping. But I've had, I have a, a series on my podcast where I've interviewed I don't even know how many women at this point who just share their experiences with, with contraceptives. I call it my pill reality series. And I've interviewed a number of women who use a copper IUD and there's a few things that come out. One of them is painful insertion. So I'm not sure what your experience was there, but many women, women report that the insertion is excruciating. Um, some report that it, a, a smaller percentage report that they didn't have any pain, but the yeah, majority I no seem, pain. I felt yeah. nothing. Well, see, and and you had also recently had a child. Yeah. So I'm like, maybe that could have a lot to do with it. Potentially. Yeah. Um, but it's across the gamut. So it's every woman doesn't say that there was pain with insertion, but there's like a, a, a definite larger percentage that do. And um, and sometimes it's just like a, a, a second. And then other times the resulting cramps last for like a week. So it really ranges. But in addition, like the pain and the um, heavier periods is pretty much across the board. Um, and for some it's, it's manageable. 
Like if your period was super, super light and you had no cramps and you go from that to having a little bit extra blood and maybe like mild cramping, I think for some women, it's totally fine. But for others, it's, it's a, it's a big problem. Yeah. For me, it's a big problem. Like now I'm like, I hate having a period so much. <laughs> I complain every, I complain every month, especially not like being pregnant and not having it. Like, and then I got it three months after. So not having it for a year and then it coming back, I'm like, oh my gosh, the sky is falling. Yeah. It's, it's tough. It's tough. And uh, this is a, a big challenge, obviously that, that all of us face when we're looking at how to prevent pregnancy, you know? Um, so obviously I don't know what your rationale was, but I think the majority of women who choose the copper IUD, it's because they don't want hormones. <laughs> so yeah. they're, yeah. So they're looking at the most effective non-hormonal method, which is the copper IUD. <laughs> uh, and, and that's hard because then if it doesn't work for you, then you're kind of left with, okay, so do it. Does that mean I have to do an IUD with hormones? Because then you won't have the bleeding necessarily, but I, it goes either way. So with the, with the hormonal IUDs, what happens is that some women experience a lot of irregular bleeding for the first six months. And then for many, it eventually kind of tapers off. And then you get into how some women will continue to have a normal kind of bleed every, so every, however many, you know, days or whatever, others won't bleed at all. So you don't really know what that's going to look like. And then there's the wild card of the hormones. So a lot of women have issues with the hormonal IUD because it causes a lot of side effects. So uh, I think it's a really hard uh, decision for many women, especially the ones who don't respond well to these different methods. And I mean, that's where the fertility awareness method comes in, I think, because for me, I don't think every woman on earth should use fertility awareness, but I think, I mean, because I, just because I know that it's not necessarily the right method for every single person, but I do feel that women should learn about it and know about it and just be informed that it's an option because there is a percentage of women who can't necessarily use some of these other methods and really start to feel like they have no options. Right. I know for me, my reasoning for getting a copper IUD was one, because I didn't want any more hormones because prior to getting pregnant, I was on um, the pill. And then I also did not want to have to remember to take a pill every day with taking care of a new baby. So those were like my two main reasonings for getting the copper IUD. Um, yeah, insertion for me, it was not painful at all. I was actually really surprised because I know when like, I heard like people who I know have gotten it said it was painful. And even like YouTube videos I watched, people were like, the insertion was so painful. So I was really nervous going in, but I didn't feel a thing at all. Every time she was like, okay, it's going to hurt right now. And I felt nothing. So I was like a little bit confused about that, but I was kind of relieved at the same time that it didn't hurt. But I feel like the transition from going from like hormonal birth control to like being pregnant and all those hormones to now like having no hormones I feel like I'm starting to feel the effects of like trying to of my hormones trying to get back in check mm -hmm. like you mean the the change of how the difference between how it felt on the hormones versus now yeah now I feel like I get like hot flashes like I never like I used to have eczema when I was younger and now I feel like it's flaring up like randomly in like places that it never flared up before yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly a tricky thing. I think uh, one thing that is definitely interesting, I think a lot of women experience is that it does feel different on contraceptives for many people and that's because it's hormones. So it, it's synthetic hormones. They call the hormones, you know, estrogen and progesterone, but they're not, 
they are synthetic versions that are patentable. So in order for a company to make money, they can't put uh, a hormone that is a natural kind of um, like a hormone that is the same structure as a natural hormone because you can't own nature. So in order to patent and make money off of these drugs, they have to go into the lab and change the structure of the hormones enough so that your body will read them as one of the estrogens, but it's not actually estrogen. It's a synthetic version. And similarly with the progestins. And so when you're taking hormonal contraceptives, the main mode of action is suppressing ovulation. So the majority of like the pills, the patches, all those things suppress ovulation. The secondary mode of action is that it causes the endometrial lining to remain very thin. So the endometrial lining is not receptive to a fertilized egg. And it also causes the formation of a thick mucus plug that prevents sperm from entering the uterus. So those are the three main modes of action. But what essentially is happening is that in order to suppress ovulation, you're shutting down your natural ovarian function. And when you shut down the natural ovarian function, what happens is that you're not making your natural estrogens and progesterones. So this is one of the reasons why many women experience change in their mood. So a lot of women will say that when they're on the pill, they don't feel themselves. They feel kind of like they don't have highs and lows emotionally. It's all like flat. They kind of, I've had heard women describe that there's like a haze. And so then if you come off of birth control and conceive, then what can happen is you actually feel in your body. So I'm not sure what's happening in your case, if this is just postpartum and your hormones are normalizing. But one thing that I think is important to say is the copper IUD is not hormonal, but for some women, they actually have effects that feel hormonal. So for example, when you're taking the pill, one of the things that it does is it depletes a variety of nutrients. And so including zinc, for example, And so what can happen for women on the pill is that the pill is depleting their zinc and then they end up with copper excess because there's certain nutrients and and minerals in our body that need to be balanced. So it's very common for women to come off of the pill and have really low zinc and then have like excess copper. And then it takes a little bit of time for them to get that back into rebalance. So when you're on the copper IUD, I mean, it's releasing copper ions. So many women come off the copper IUD and they are in the same boat where they have excess copper, potentially low zinc and So even though it's not hormonal, it can still have an effect on the body. Um, I'll give an example. I had a client and I just released um, a podcast episode. So she shared her experience on my podcast and she experienced a really severe PMDD. And so she actually had the copper IUD inserted and what, and PMDD is basically a really severe form of PMS and PMS is characterized by an imbalance of estrogen and progesterone in the luteal phase. So as you're approaching your period, the progesterone is dropping way too fast. And so the progesterone is way too low. And that sharp drop is associated with an increase of symptoms, the PMS type stuff. But PMDD is like another level of it where it's really severe. So what she found was that when she was on the copper IUD, her PMDD symptoms were basically out of control. And it was because again, the copper IUD, even though it's not hormonal, was having an effect of reducing her progesterone. And so when she had it removed, although she's still, um, kind of healing and working to balance her hormones, she experienced a significant reduction in her PMDD symptoms just by having the copper IUD out because her hormones were better able to normalize. So this is like a super long way of addressing what you mentioned, but you know, is it that you're having the postpartum symptoms just because your body body's rebalancing, or is it possible that the copper IUD could be throwing stuff off? That would be something that you'd have to kind of look into. 
And that's something like all the things that you were talking about with the copper ID, that's something copper IUD, that's something that they don't actually even like tell you about. Like I didn't know about any of that. Yeah, that's that's the problem. The no, the no hormones thing, and then that's like that's pretty much it. Well, yeah, and, and this the the challenge with all of these things is that even the basic. So, I mean, I outlined the main modes of action for the copper IUD, and I outlined the main mode, modes of action for hormonal contraceptives. The average woman is taking contraceptives for like five, 10, 15 years, and she doesn't even she couldn't explain how it works. Like the, the, what I hear when people explain how it worked and even what I thought, cause I was also a teenager once before I kind of went into this field and I, they'd say, oh, it makes your body think you're pregnant and that's why you can't get pregnant. And that's like, not true. It, that's not what it does. And what it does is it suppresses ovarian function. And so if you were to look at the levels of uh, uh, hormones, like naturally produced hormones in a woman on contraceptives, they would more closely mirror a woman in menopause. And if you think about that, so what happens in menopause? Well, your ovaries are no longer ovulating. And so you're not making your, as much estrogen and progesterone. And you, you hear women in menopause complain of things like vaginal dryness and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And when you think about what are the symptoms of that women experience on the pill, like what are some of those side effects, vaginal dryness, pain with sex, inability to orgasm or difficulty with orgasm and stuff like that. So it kind of makes sense if you think about it that way. Pause. We're going to take a quick intermission, and while we're on break, I want to know if you've been on the pill, and if so, have you experienced any of the side effects mentioned? And if you feel comfortable enough, head over to the From K to Z Instagram page if you are able to, if your hands are free, if you listen to this while you drive in, do not, I repeat, do not head over to the Instagram page right now. When you get a free moment, when you're not doing something that could put your life in jeopardy, head over to the From K to Z podcast Instagram page and let us know your experience on the pill underneath the discussion post for this episode. Like, I feel like a, this information needs to be more, like, widespread. And I feel like even, like, the, like the OBGYN, like, she tried to sell me on the um the hormonal IUD, but at that point, I kind of already had my mind made up. But with the copper ID, they do, like, a little consultation beforehand, and she didn't mention any of those things. Well, I mean, did she not mention the increased period? Yeah. Like, she, volume and that's, pain? Yeah, that's all she mentioned. And, and she mentioned the pain, like, too? The cramps and, like, the heavier bleeding. That was, that's it. Yeah. Well, and I think so from, I, I would imagine that from the doctor's perspective, I mean, the, the most common complaint about IUDs in general is bleeding. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the research, if you read the package insert, which I would recommend for anyone to do. So mm-hmm. just for public service announcement. So any hormonal contraceptive, if you're currently, if you currently have an IUD, whether it's hormonal or non-hormonal, or if you're currently taking any type of pill, patch, shot, whatever, literally look up look it up online, like t- type in the brand and prescribing information just for everyone's sake. Cause there's a PDF online for all of them and you can read it yourself. Um, but from the doctor's perspective, the most common reason women complain. So the reason why they're coming back to the office and complaining is because of the bleeding. So I think the reason in, this is just my opinion that the doctors are recommending the hormonal is because, so the hormonal there's typically certain it's like, a, there's different side effects. So the hormonal takes care of for many, the pain, 
Right. So because it's, it's um, releasing progesterone, there's something else I have to say, because with the hormonal IUDs, <laughs> all these women are told by their practitioners that the hormonal IUD releases a quote, low dose of progestins into the uterus and it's localized and whatever. It's nonsense. If I put on lotion on my skin, the, like the estrogen, estrogenic chemicals in the lotion go all throughout my body. So if you have a progestin infused IUD that's releasing progesterone, um, synthetic progestins into your bloodstream every day, it doesn't stay in the uterus. So just, I always have to say that because it's really, it's one of the things that irritates me the most because it's the silliest thing I've ever heard in my life. Um, so, but what happens is that because it causes the uterine lining to be very thin, many women do experience much lighter bleeding. So, so with the hormonal IUD, some of the most common complaints with the copper IUD, so the pain and heavy bleeding are less likely to be happening, except with the hormonal IUD, then you move from having these heavy painful periods for to many women experiencing irregular bleeding for like six months, like I said, and that can be very distressing, like to bleed for like four months straight. Yeah. Even if it's lighter. Once I, once I had my period or I don't even know, but like I was bleeding for like 14 days and that was the first time that ever happened to me and it was terrible. And was that like related to the copper ID or just a general period? This was a general period. This was like before I got pregnant and had the ID. Yeah. I mean, it's important to, to look into those things. I think um, when I hear someone say that they had their period for 14 days, I mean, I would want to ask all the questions like, was the bleeding the same the whole time or was there heavier bleeding? And then did it like go to spotting? And then was it alternating like heavy spotting, heavy data? Uh, so, you know, I always want to know all the questions. I think the important thing to know is that it is not normal to bleed for 14 days. If something like that happens and it's kind of like a one-off and maybe it's associated with a time of stress or whatever's going on in your life, that might be something I, I think that we all kind of experience certain one-offs, but I, I, I very heavily caution, you know, if you start to experience stuff like that and it's happening on a regular basis, it is important to get screened and it's a bit, it's hard. It's hard to because I think sometimes the physicians don't necessarily take it as seriously as they need to, mm-hmm. but you got to push for like ultrasound, do the external and the internal. I call it the magic wand. <laughs> yeah. If anyone hasn't had the internal where they put the, the, the ultrasound in, into the vagina and like kind of look around. So they get more information. You just want to push for answers just to, to make sure that you're screened so that they're ruling out any serious potential conditions. Abnormal bleeding is very serious. It can be something as uh, simple as a hormonal imbalance or an issue with, um, you know, like if you have a severe IBS or like a gut problem, I've seen that associated with uh, abnormal bleeding quite a bit, but it can be as as something like that to something as serious as uterine cancer, especially if the bleeding is consistent and irregular and abnormal. So it's really, really important never to take those things lightly. Yeah. My mom was definitely pushing me to to the doctor. She's like, if it continues one more day, you're going to the doctor. And then the, the second she said that it stopped. Yeah. And, and it's really important. I, I think that's that intuition because you know what I mean? Like that's that intuition that we should never ignore. Yeah. We all, I mean, if you think about it logically, we all know that it's not okay to bleed for, for two weeks, yeah. unless you've just had a baby. We all know this. but yet still, and I'm not pushing blame, but it's just the field that I'm in. Mm -hmm. I've worked with women who, um, like I had a couple of clients last year in particular, and they were in the uh, perimenopausal phase. So they're in that period. So perimenopause is simply a word for the 10 year period before your last one. Mm -hmm. So typically on average women are experiencing menopause. 
So that's the word for the last period, you know, somewhere between age 50, 55. Um, and you know, it can happen a bit earlier as well. So basically we're talking about that period of time, like in your forties to fifties kind of thing. And so I've, you know, I spoke to a number of women and it's like, Oh, I've been bleeding for a month. Like, no, like <laughs> this is not okay. Yeah. I understand that it's much more common to have those types of irregular bleeding patterns during that phase of life, but we can't just say, okay, well, it's, you know, it's common. So it's normal. It's never normal to bleed for a month. It's never normal to bleed for a week or, or to bleed for two weeks. Like we just got to demand better for, from our medical providers. Right. Because I feel like a lot of the times, like in my experience, not even just with anything that has to do with like periods or anything, anytime I go to my doctor and I say like, I'm having like this issue, da, 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 it's always, yeah, that's normal. Yeah, that's normal. Yeah, that's normal. Like that's like always the answer I get for everything. Yeah. I mean, this is a, a big challenge. So when I'm suggesting to get the care you need and to go in there and ask for things, it's not easy. Uh, I mean, I, we, how much time do you have? Like we could, we could spend the whole podcast, me sharing horrific experiences I've had in doctor's offices when you demand for the care that you need. Uh, and in fact, typically you, if, if you do need to have, I think it's actually helpful to have a bit of a, a plan and strategy in mind. And often you have to talk your doctor's language. So a couple of things that can be really helpful, actually, if you do have a concern. So let's say you have heavy bleeding. Let's say after our conversation today, you're reflecting back on the parameters of a normal cycle that I shared. And let's say that, you know, when I shared that if you're bleeding like more than like four to five full, you know, regular pads for a few days, that that's really heavy. So let's say that you're thinking to yourself, well, man, I use a menstrual cup and I, you know, fill it once an hour. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's like way heavier than what would we like way outside of what we would consider to be optimal. So let's say, okay, you're like, okay, I want to go to the doctor now. I've learned that this is, this could be in a problem. It could mean like I have fibroids or it could mean like there's a problem that I should get checked out. So what do you do? So the first thing I would suggest is to really quantify what's happening. If we're talking about bleeding, you need to like actually start recording it. So whether you use pads, tampons, or a menstrual cup, just note how many you're going through and how quickly, like start there. Okay. It's much different if you go to the doctor and say, I have heavy bleeding. Cause they kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah versus I filled eight pads in one day. And the second day I filled six pads and these are super plus pads. And then the next day, da, 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 da. And based on my calculations, that's 180 milliliters. That's, you're going to get a different response from that. Right. Yeah, that, that's definitely, yeah, that's true. It makes it seem more urgent. Yeah. Like you have to talk their language. Like if you're experiencing some pain or things like that, Um, you might have to be very specific. I mean, it's very unfortunate. The reality is that as women, we are gaslighted (laughs) from morning to night, day in and day out by these medical professionals. And I don't want to sound really negative because it's not all of them. There's plenty of medical professionals that are completely respectful and professional and really thorough, but even the most thorough individual, there's a limitation with the medical system. I, I mean, when you go to a doctor, they often have how many patients behind you? 40, you know, they have five minute appointments potentially. So there is a limitation inherent in the system that isn't even the fault of the the medical professional in front of you. So it's all, we just have to kind of accept, well, I don't know if accept is the right word, but we kind of have to acknowledge what it is and then create our strategies. And then if you don't like the answer that you're getting, and if your doctor's not taking you seriously, we also have to 
like basically be willing if we are really serious and really concerned and really want answers to go to someone else. Yep. Yep. That's, that's definitely true. Cause a lot of times people like push things off, push things off. And then the issue gets, gets worse. And then now you're in like a worse like position. Well, and doctors aren't gods. They don't know everything. Right. You know, they're one modality and they know a lot about their particular field, Mm -hmm. but I think that it wouldn't take long. So if you and I discussed our own personal experiences and friends and family, mm-hmm. I'm sure that we would have at least a few examples to share of when a doctor told you something and then it turned out that the thing was not what the doctor said it was. Yeah. This is not uncommon. And again, it's not anything to say against doctors. It's the reality of life. We all know logically that when we're told something, it's good to get a second opinion. We all know this, but how often do we do it? Rare. And, and we need to do it. You know, I've worked with clients who they're told like, okay, you have this big problem. You need to have the surgery like next week. And they go to a, get a, a, a second opinion. And it turns out that that's not the issue. And like, you could have gone and had the surgery. I'll share a personal experience just to like put it in there. <laughs> so when I was about 15 or so, this was before I went on the pill, I had this pain in my abdomen. And it was bad enough that I complained to my mom and she took me to the hospital, like not hospital. She took me to the doctor. So she made an appointment and took me to the doctor. The doctor informed my mom that I had appendicitis and he told her to bring me back at four o'clock that same day to have it taken out. So my mom freaked out and she was kind of like, no. (laughs) So she took me and we lived in a small town outside of the big city. So she took me to the big city. I had a pediatrician up there. And so she took me to my pediatrician. My pediatrician examined me and told me I was ovulating. Oh my. So then you would have like your pedics removed for like nothing. Correct. Still and like issue. from that time, I still feel what's called Mittelschmerz, which is the, the, um, the pain of ovulation. Uh, it certainly varies. It, it's, um, I've learned a lot more about it nowadays. So I've managed to do a lot of things to reduce the severity mm-hmm. of it. So it's not like when I was younger, I think it was pretty ridiculous, but I think, you know, it's not like it's ho- this horrible thing. Like I usually just feel like a dull pain in my side or something like that. But my point though, is it like, this is an example. So it's unfortunately, I think that it's, it's hard because it's not fair to have this pressure and responsibility on us mm-hmm. to really be the ones. Cause you're supposed to be able to go to the professional and the professional is supposed to use their professionalism and all of their degrees and information and knowledge to help right. you. And you're not supposed to have to think about it, but this is not the world we live in. So especially with women's health issues, with women's reproductive issues, with women's cycle issues, period issues, hormone issues, all those specific things. It's really just so important. If you take one thing away from this uh, interview today is that you really have to be your own advocate and just don't accept what you're told. Just, you know, get to like that trust, but verify, like verify, right. Get a second opinion. And that means you can go to another doctor, but in many cases for, again, hormonal issues, menstrual cycle issues, period issues, you also want to consider doing a functional second opinion. Like maybe go to a naturopath or someone else who has a bit of a functional perspective and functional simply means that it's a different modality. That's actually trying to say, well, why do you have the hormonal imbalance as opposed to, let me just put you on this drug. True. Yes. And how often do you think that we should be getting checked and tested? I mean, I'm the type of person who I I don't think, 
then I, I, I'm, <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying I'm correct here. I'm just going to share my perspective. Okay. So my perspective is that, you know, if you don't have a problem, then I don't know that it's necessary to spend a thousand dollars doing a million tests. Right. So from my perspective, especially in the work that I do, so let's say I'm working with a client, I'm basing my recommendations on what I see on their charts and their cycles. So if I'm seeing, if I have a client and their cycles are super long and they have the kind of classic signs of PCOS, like hirsutism, which means like coarse hair growth on like the chin and the back and areas that you don't want. And I'm seeing these long, irregular cycles and I'm seeing, you know, signs of a potential problem. Then I'm going to suggest, okay, I think you should get checked out. I think you should, you know, have this checked out, screened out, whatever. So I'm the kind of person that says that, that feels that we should certainly when there's something wrong and when we have a concern, we should be fully thoroughly investigating that thing. I think from a general standpoint, I mean, you can always go with the general advice, get your checkups once a year or whatever, but ultimately I'm more of a, um, you know, I'm not looking for problems when there isn't any problems. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I definitely agree. And I feel like people don't really, they put, they tell you when you're 21, I think it's when you're 21, you're supposed to get checkups every year. But truthfully, I feel like had I not had a baby, like if at the six week appointment, they naturally like did the, the checkup. So I feel like if I didn't have a baby, then probably to this point, I probably still would not have ever gotten checked. Well, and then the question too, is like, what are they checking? So for example, if I rule the world, which I obviously don't, <laughs> um, you know, when uh, a woman has a baby, for example, there are certain things I think would be useful to actually check as a standard thing. And that includes, a, you know, nutrient panels. So it's, so for anyone who doesn't know, or hasn't thought about it this way, when you have a child, your body made another human being. Right. And so from a nutrient standpoint, there's no other event in life that is going to require as much nutrients as building another human. Right. Like, think about that. There's nothing else. So the way I share and talk about this with my clients is I call it my bank account analogy. So if you think about it, pregnancy and breastfeeding is only withdrawals from this bank account. Right. Because you're literally making a human. And then once the human is made, then you're feeding the human. So the, the, like your baby's literally sucking out your nutrients from your body. Mm-hmm. So it would, so one of the things that I think is helpful just to think about from my practice, my postpartum clients are pretty consistently low on iron. They're pretty consistently low in B vitamins and folate. And they're definitely consistently low uh, in iodine and a variety of nutrients that we need. And many of my clients, they have a baby and it, it really depends. So you've had your, your child and you're a bit younger, you know, you know, that many women are waiting until they're in their thirties. Yes. And so when they're waiting until they're in their thirties, they're kind of waiting for all the things to line up. You know, you have the, the partner, the job, the house, the whatever. And so then when you start having kids, it's like you have a couple of years. So like we're, we're wanting to just continue to drop babies <laughs> at least two or three. Right. And so you're in the state where you're potentially, you just had a baby, you're breastfeeding, your body's potentially really nutrient depleted. And now you're wanting to have the next one. And no one's talking about like, should we be screening her? Should we be checking her iron levels? Should we be encouraging her to eat a nourishing diet to replete the nutrients that were required for pregnancy? Our culture just doesn't really look at it that way. And so 
I think that your question is interesting because you're talking about kind of a general checkup. And I would say, well, it's kind of useless. <laughs> like if you just had a baby, like a general checkup is nice. Sure. But they're not actually going to be checking all these nutrient stuff unless yeah. you ask for that. And so I would say that we want to be looking at more targeted, um, specific, purposeful investigations when we should be, when we need to be. Yeah. That would definitely make a lot more sense. I think because you could be low on all these things and n- n- like have no idea, but the only information you're getting back is that like, you don't have cervical cancer. Exactly. <laughs> you, yeah, exactly. Which is not, he- which is not helpful. If like, you're like, not- it's good. I'm glad you don't have yeah. cervical cancer. Yeah. Me too. Me too. <laughs> but like, but then again, it's about the goals. So the, in the work that I do, it's always been about supporting women because again, women are kind of lost in the system. The system wasn't made for us. It was designed for men. Unfortunately, if you even look at the science, the science was done on male bodies and male animals. For the most part, there are drugs that have come out that were only tested on men that have different effects on women. And then, you know, when the drugs have different effects on women, they, they don't know how to identify what's going on because they only tested on men. Yeah. And, and sometimes then you have a medicine and again, testing on men. And they're giving a, a dosage to men based on the test. And then they give the same dosage to women. And maybe this particular drug, they need half of the dose. Yeah. So, and even it's, it's recently come out. You can certainly, anyone can search this if you want to learn more about it. Women and men respond differently to heart attacks. So for the longest time, we had all of the, the ways to identify a heart attack in men, but it, it, it um, presents differently in women. And so many heart attacks for women were more fatal because they weren't being identified because they don't present the same way as men do. So these are just a few examples of <laughs> the problems in medicine. So uh, unfortunately we have to be aware that there's a lot of different issues specific to women, hormonal, especially reproductive health and things like that, where the medical profession really like anyone who has had any menstrual problems and went to their doctor is probably well aware that they have one solution for you. Mm-hmm right? Hormonal contraceptives. <laughs> and, yeah. and that doesn't address the problem. Like that simply uh, suppresses ovulation and reduces the symptoms. It can be very good at symptom management, but then what happens when you come off of it? So it, like in my case, I had the pain and yeah, the, the pill got rid of my periods <laughs> and replaced them with withdrawal bleeds, like pill periods, which are not the same thing. And so it was great. Like I was able to do my sports and stuff, but ultimately I did have migraines the only time in my life when I was on it. I, I remember being completely like emotionally unstable and like w- having outrageous reactions to things in retrospect. So I'm, I'm in retrospect, I think that it affected my emotions mm-hmm. and it, I had these migraines with aura. And now I know in retrospect that if you're on birth control and you have migraines with aura, it puts you at a much higher risk of a stroke. So I thank God that I never had that experience. And, um, and at the end of the day, when I came off the pill, I still had the painful periods to deal with. Damn. So it, it, again, it comes across like, oh, she hates the pill. She's not, but it's more like, I just want people to be aware. So if you have a cycle problem, it's good to have the relief, but then what is the plan? Because most women all at some point want to have babies. And so if you want to, to do that, it's ideal to have a healthy cycle. And so wh- where are you going to get the support to, to help you to normalize your menstrual cycle and to kind of figure this out without the drugs. Right. And speaking of that, how early do you think women should plan ahead for pregnancy? And do you think that fertility awareness is something like important for, let's say, a teenager or a young adult who has no intention of having a baby for another, let's say, like five, 10, 15 years? 
That's a great question. So in terms of when to prepare, I think there's two ways to answer the question. So one way from my perspective, and again, my perspective is different because of what I do. It is possible to prevent pregnancy without altering your cycle. So for women who are comfortable with that or interested or who feel like it's a good fit for them, if you're charting your menstrual cycles, using that as a method of birth control, you know, in combination with barrier methods or or something like that, then it does give you an opportunity to preserve your fertility because you're not altering your natural cycle with hormones. So just that in and of itself is kind of something, an option, but again, it's not something that all women are going to choose to do. To answer your question more specifically, I think that in a perfect world, when you know that you want to have kids, so you have a, a bit of a runway, if you will, that if you're able to give yourself like a year or two ahead of time to potentially come off of hormonal contraceptives, to recover your natural cycle, and to give you time to identify if there's anything wrong, especially if you were put on hormones because you had a problem. So I think women who were put on the pill or other contraceptives because they had an irregular cycle, because they did never had a period, because they had really brutal, painful periods, all that kind of stuff. Like if there was a specific problem and you were put on the pill for that, I think it's even more important for you to consider coming off of the pill, a minimum of like 18 months to two years before you're ready to start trying only because you want to just like have, it's like your insurance policy. You want to just have the time to see what happens. Like, is my cycle just going to come back and normalize? Uh, is it, is it going to be fine? Because it does take a period of time for your cycles to normalize post pill. So then in, in combination with that, so consider coming off the pill and letting your cycles normalize, but then you also want to consider replenishing the nutrients that are depleted off the pill. So like folate, B vitamins, I mentioned uh, zinc. There's a number of nutrients that are depleted when you take the pill long-term or other contraceptives that are hormonal. And so you want to replete those nutrients. And I would suggest a preconception focus where you're really focused on uh, building up that nutrition before you have your baby. Because again, with my bank account analogy, during that preconception period, you do want to take the time to support your body. And I think this is important because the world is really focused on having a healthy baby, which is really important. But as a mom myself, I think that it's also important to support the mother. If you go into pregnancy with super low iron stores and you don't have a plan for that, when you have your baby and your iron stores are in the toilet, you won't be able to function. And when you have a baby, your baby needs you. (laughs) Your baby needs constant attention, especially in those early months. And so we don't just want a healthy baby. We want a healthy mom and a healthy baby. I agree. Um, And the second part of your question was related to teenagers. So I find this question to be super interesting (laughs) because um, I always get the question like, do you think that fertility awareness is the appropriate method of birth control for teenagers? And my answer is, I think condoms are appropriate for teenagers. (laughs) Like what happened to condoms? You know, condoms prevent pregnancy and STIs in one method. But I understand that, you know, our, our world is a little bit different now. Uh, so I, I do think that fertility awareness is, is important and useful. And I think that tracking the menstrual cycle is helpful and important for any woman. I think that if you had teenage girls and taught them about their cervical mucus and taught them that they can predict their period by tracking their cycle so that they don't have to be ever in a, in a situation where their period just comes and it surprises them and all that kind of stuff. I feel like that is really useful information. (laughs) I feel like when I was a teenager, before I knew all this stuff, before I was on the pill, 
that would have been the most amazing thing to be able to, to predict ahead of time when my period was coming just by paying attention to mucus. So if you pay attention to when you have your mucus, um, so the clear stretchy stuff or the lotion stuff, and then it goes away and knowing that your period in a healthy cycle comes 12 to 14 days afterwards, you know, that is really, really helpful. So I think it would be really, really helpful for young women and, and teenage girls to learn about their cycles, just to have a sense of how it works. And even just the basic, like just to have someone explain to you, you know, the beginning of your cycle, you're having certain estrogen, like estrogen and that's associated with ovulation. And you're going to notice that cervical mucus and ovulation is actually how you make your hormones. And you might feel more energetic around that time. A lot of women report that they feel more outgoing. And then after you ovulate, that's when you make your progesterone and the, the cervical mucus goes away. And during that time, you know, it's not uncommon to feel a little less sociable. Maybe you might get a little irritable. Uh, it shouldn't be too bad, but it, it, it can happen and et cetera. Even just for someone to explain that. Yeah, I agree. Because I feel like now when you're older and you like look back and you think, wow, this is a lot of information to take in. But if you would have learned this in high school when they were teaching you about all this stuff, it would have just been normal and second nature. Well, yeah. And it, it helps you to, to man- manage because what I find is now it's really popular to talk about cycle syncing and, you know, working, getting your exercise routine worked into your cycle and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think it's great. But at the same time, I think that it's not this novel thing. If you, if you cycle long enough, you realize that there's certain parts of the cycle you feel more energetic and certain parts of the cycle that you feel less energetic. And um, what I find is that we don't even give ourselves permission to just accept that and go with it. You know, I'm speaking to women sometimes and they have their exercise plan, you know, their 30 day, whatever they're doing, 30 day challenge. And they're like trying to run and, and work out on their period. Now, if you want to work out in your period, you know, good for you. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm never going to tell you, you know, that you can't do that. I think it's amazing. You go ahead. I am not, I will not <laughs> work out when like on day one or day two of my period, I will not, especially because I have a history of pain. I'm not trying to agitate anything. I just want to let my uterus be, and that's okay. And I think that's the message. Like if we just learn a little bit more about our cycle, we can be a little bit more just, just like acknowledging what's happening in our body, going with it, giving us permission not to act like men in this world. (laughs) Not that there's anything wrong with men, but men have like a day-to-day, you know, they don't have a menstrual cycle, right? But we have a full month where things are a bit different. So it's okay if in one week we're more productive in another week, we maybe pull it back a little bit. Like we don't have to be like this kind of standard norm kind of situation. Yeah. Trying to like do it all 24 seven. Yeah. Like we actually work on a monthly clock. (laughs) And so we're going to need a little bit of time, you know, at the, at the beginning of the cycle and not necessarily everybody's different, but I'm just saying like, it's okay if you do, and we should stop putting that kind of pressure. So taking back to the teenagers, if we just taught the teenagers about the cycle and again, fertility awareness, the knowledge of the cycle and tracking the cycle, it doesn't mean that you're using it for birth control. Like you can learn how to track your cycle and not use it for birth control. So with teenagers, I think we need to kind of, it, it is helpful to teach everybody that it is a method that people can choose. But again, I think that for at the teenage level, it's for me personally, in my opinion, I think it's more about body awareness, empowerment, positivity. And wouldn't it be helpful to be told as a teenager that painful periods are not like to be expected? They're very common, but not optimal, like just basic stuff. Because what happens is then you have a grown woman, you know, 35 years old, and she's accepted her periods as painful. She doesn't even ask for help about it anymore. We just normalize PMS. And so, so basically the woman has some challenges that she could use support with, but we're, we've been so indoctrinated that we don't even ask for help anymore. Cause we just assume right. that this is how it has to be. Yes. That, yeah. 
I, yeah, I definitely agree. Now I want to talk about your book, but before we get into that, I have like one, one like final, I guess, question, I guess you would say. So let's say someone wants to start like charting their cycle, like where should they start? So that's a good question. I think it starts with education. And so uh, of course the most common book that people get their information from when they're first learning to chart is taking charge of your fertility. Of course, I've also written a, the book, The Fifth Vital Sign. I think um, it's helpful to start by informing yourself. So also my podcast, Fertility Friday, since that's all I talk about, basically charting and um, balance, balancing hormonal health and things like that, it's, it's helpful to just have a resource and start there. So in terms of the more practical answer, you would want to you know, grab your favorite charting app. I know I like to chart on paper, so you, you can figure that out, but there's lots of great apps out there now. You want to look for an app that is designed for fertility awareness charting. And I would suggest to look for an app that allows you to shut off the prediction so that you have the opportunity to just learn how to chart on your own without the app telling you when you're supposed to ovulate or supposed to have your period because the apps don't always get it on the right day. And what I find is that um, if the app is telling you that you're, something's supposed to happen today, but it's not happening, you start to question your own body, but the app doesn't know it's in your panties. So there's a limit to how, <laughs> I, I, there's always a limit to how um, accurate it can be. Yeah, very true. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so that would be kind of the first step and you can buy a thermometer and, and but, but I would say from a very practical standpoint, you want to jump in and start charting, but you don't want to use the method for birth control right away. If you're learning on your own, you want to take a minimum of six to three to six full cycles. So meaning period ovulation period three times, because you need to learn the rules and how to chart before you start actually applying it and having unprotected sex, because that's how unplanned pregnancies happen. Right. Yeah. And then I suppose the last thing I'll say is for, for women who are really serious about using it as birth control. And, you know, a lot of my clients fall into the category that they've tried hormonal contraceptives. It didn't work for them. They've been on a bunch of different kinds and they just always had bad side effects. So there are, a, there's a certain percentage of women who basically they're at their wits end. They feel like there's no other options. They're tolerating the side effects because they really feel like they, there's nothing else they could do. So there are situations where it's really crucial and critical that this work mm -hmm. because they need another option. And so I would suggest to, to consider seeking support um, working with an instructor, at least getting in a few sessions, choosing a specific method, because it, it really can work. Fertility awareness-based methods are up to 99.4% effective when used correctly. So they're as effective as birth control hormonal when you, when used correctly. But if you really want to be successful, I do recommend at least getting a couple of sessions in with an instructor so that you can get started on the right foot. Oh, got it. So now for your book. So like, tell us a bit about your book. Like what inspired you to write this book? Well, so basically everything that we talked about today inspired me to write it. I would say what happened, I shared my journey in terms of like how I first learned and taking the classes and teaching women in my early twenties. And so ultimately, like I said, I got to that point when I had my son and I'm, you know, around 30 years old. And I realized that I've been just so blessed by this information, but the average woman still doesn't know about it. So I started my podcast and I started putting the information out there, got a really good response. But again, you know, the, the question, the thing that women always tell me is every woman should know about this. Why don't people know about this? So my book was meant to present kind of the information that we talked about today and much more in mm -hmm. one place. Right. So the answer to like, you know, what can we do? Why don't women learn about this? If we wait until our teachers, governments, people in charge, decision makers, if we wait until all of these men <laughs> decide that this is important 
then we'll just keep waiting. So it's really up to us to just put it out there. So that's essentially why I wrote the book, because even the concept that the menstrual cycle is like a vital sign and we can use it to track our health and stuff is still a new one. And mm-hmm. it's kind of novel. Most people are just really enamored by that idea. Like, wow. And then as soon as you, as soon as you get into it, it it's kind of like, well, yeah, obviously yeah. <laughs> but we don't think about it that way. Like as soon as someone says it to you, it's like, well, yeah, if you don't have a period, that's obviously a sign of a problem. And, and, and people intuitive, intuitively are like, well, yeah, but we're never presented with it in that way. So, yeah. so yeah, so that's basically what it is. It's kind of, it's my contribution to this conversation. I would like to see a world where we all just get to learn about our cycles and it's not this big deal. It's just like a standard thing and we can just get better healthcare because we can acknowledge that if our cycles are messed up, we need to have certain support and et cetera to make them optimal and healthy. Like I just want everyone to be healthy and happy. Like when our hormones are good, when our cycles are great, when we're making enough estrogen and progesterone, when we're like healthy, we feel better. Life is better. So that's, that's what this is about. And then the other thing I could go on forever, honestly, but one thing I'll say too, is that, you know, there's, there's this whole concept of feminism. And I think that if you look deeply at feminism, sometimes it can come across like, um, how do I say this? It's going to be controversial anyways, but it can come across that all we need to do is prevent pregnancy. And so there's this idea that, uh, we, you know, we need to get our education. We need to do our thing. And it's really important that we can, you know, not get pregnant when we want to do all these things because it can get in the way. And I think it's overtaken the, the other side of it, which is we have the right to choose when we have babies and when not to. Right. So I feel like we, we should be able to, when we want to have a baby to have one as well as when we don't want one to not have one. <laughs> if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it should be just as important that we have the ability to choose to have a baby when we want to, as it is to choose not to have a baby when we don't want to. And in order to do that, I believe we have to support our optimal health and, and become aware of the things that are negatively affecting fertility. Cause that's a whole other conversation, but there's a significant upward trend in infertility and it's affecting so many couples. They say one in six. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. So we, we kind of got down the not getting pregnant part. So now, now we got to like balance it out and try to find ways to optimize our overall health and our cycles to add that to the conversation too. Right. And what is like one thing you want readers to take away from this book? Well, I think, I think the, if, if I had to pick one thing, I would just say that it's that our menstrual cycles are important, regardless of whether or not we want to have babies, we should be aware that they are a sign of health. Yes, I agree. Before, like, part of this conversation, I don't really, I never really thought much about the menstrual cycle. I'm just like, okay, I'm going to get my period. Okay. I'm not on my period. I kind of just thought about it like that, but now like it's given me a lot to think about this conversation. Good. <laughs> That's the whole point. Now I'm, just gonna, now I'm gonna like re-listen to this. I'm like, wow. Okay. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So I have a segment called recommendations where I give listeners like a recommendation based on the topic of um, the episode. So what would your recommendation be for someone who wants to learn more about fertility awareness who has, or like me, who has like no idea what it is? Um, so a recommendation to help them go from like basically no knowledge to yeah all the knowledge. Um, well, so, I mean, I've created a bunch of resources. So I think I'm obviously not the only place to go, but so I would suggest 
like my podcast, um, you can go to fertilityfriday.com slash fertility awareness. And you can also just search fertility Friday in your favorite podcast player. So that's a good place to start. I know a lot of people come to the podcast and ultimately they learn a lot because this is, this has been my jam for a long time now. In addition to that, I have some resources. So I do have a free online course. It's called, you know, FAM, Fertility Awareness Method 101. So fertilityfriday.com slash FAM, F-A-M 101. And so ultimately I think it can be really helpful. Their videos, they go through the three main fertile signs. It gives you a good introduction. And the good news for anyone who this is like all new and your mind is blown (laughs) and you're kind of happy, but pissed off and excited, like all those things at once. Cause I feel like that's what happens. Cause you're like, this is so cool. But like, why didn't anybody tell me? So it's kind of yeah. like this mix of cacophony of emotions. I like that word. So I just thought I'd throw it in there. But um, <laughs> when you are in that stage, the good news is that there's so much information available. So again, you know, I recommend taking charge of your fertility. I recommend my book, the fifth vital sign. And that's, a, that's where you start. Like you start there. Okay. And I will include all of those links in the episode notes of this episode. So if you're listening to this and you want to check any of those out, I'll um, have them linked in the notes of the episode. But thank you so much for joining us today and educating us on fertility awareness and let people know where they can find you and purchase your book. Well, thank you for that. Um, So I mentioned the podcast. Uh, So you can type Fertility Friday into your favorite podcast player. Uh, Also, I'm on Instagram at Fertility Friday. So that's a fun place where I interact as well. And the book is available on Amazon. So you can, um, and you can actually get the first chapter for free if you go to thefifthvitalsignbook.com. So, you know, you can get it there. And then for anyone who's super keen, who, you know, is charting. And like I said, I'm into paper charting. I've tried a number of apps, but I always go back to paper. I actually created a fertility awareness charting workbook. And so that's for the keeners who still want to chart on paper. Yes. So that information is also available on the fifth vital sign dot book, sorry, the fifth vital sign book.com slash workbook. So there's lots of um, ways to connect with me. I just want to thank you for having me. We covered so much ground and I feel like I went on like a hundred rants, but I hope, <laughs> I hope it was very useful because I get fired up about these topics, obviously. And I think they're very important because it's so central. It's such an important part of our lives, our fertility, and it, it, it plays such an inc- integral role in our personal and um, romantic relationships, our intimate relationships, how we manage our fertility. And it's, it, this is, it's just such an important part of our lives. So I'm glad that you gave me the opportunity to share uh, just some of these ideas and in the hopes that we can, I don't know, just have a better way of addressing these issues outside of what society tells us. Yes, for, for sure. No problem. I hope so everyone listening to this took something away. Even if you're a guy listening to this, hopefully you also took something away from this episode as well. Oh yeah. It's uh, it's, it's really interesting. I, I found that men are very supportive for the most part, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I hope you guys enjoyed today's episode. I know I had a good time talking to Lisa and learning some things that I didn't know about. I want to thank her again for taking the time out to talk to us. Um, I will link all of her stuff in the show notes. So if you want to find her, if you want to connect with her, you can find her information in the show notes below. Um, As usual, I'm going to leave you guys with a little quote today. And it is that even miracles take a little bit of time. And this was by the said by the fairy godmother in Cinderella. And I chose this quote because I know a lot of women out there are struggling with infertility. And I just want to, you know, give a little positive 
vibes and positive energy to let you know that, you know, maybe it's not your time right now, but you know, it will happen for you, you know, never lose hope. And like the quote says, miracles take a little bit of time. So with that being said, share this episode with someone who you think could benefit from Lisa's teachings. Um, Don't forget to follow us on wherever you listen to this podcast. Follow us on Instagram at from KZ Podcast. All those will be in the show notes below. Leave some feedback. Give me feedback. There's a Google form also in the show notes. You can talk about anything that you think you want me to improve on, things that you like about the show. And that is all for today. Enjoy the rest of your week. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Talk to you guys next Monday.